am disheartened. We understand that there's a need for public safety, and we're proposing different ways to police our communities. The black Instagram tiles appeared everywhere. I think that there is a um, miscategorization of the Black Lives Matter movement. So we've lost a lot of momentum. What does it take to get a more in-depth look into the week's top local news stories? The Debrief brings you inside for a one-on-one -on -one conversation with our reporters every week, right here, right now. The Debrief. Welcome, everyone, to the Debrief Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Cooperstein, in for David Ushery. The Black Lives Matter movement was founded in 2013, but it was this summer, after the police killing of George Floyd, that the movement took off, standing at the forefront of large-scale protests in cities all across America. Those protests led to a racial reckoning in our country, prompting corporate America, the media, and the general public to re-examine race. But where do things stand today? This week on The Debrief, David Ushery talks to two leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement in New York City about the status of the movement. Where are you now when it comes to Black Lives Matter and all of the emotion that you were a part of on the front lines? I am disheartened, like completely disheartened. I mean, for a while it was cool to be an activist. It was the thing to do. There were a lot of people who were mad, showed up on a global scale, and now we're not having so much of that. Obviously, police brutality is an inflammatory issue, but the conversation didn't really get deep enough for me in the sense that when we're speaking about black liberation, it doesn't stop at police brutality. It's about black health, it's about black wealth, it's about education and representation, and we never got to the meat of the issues. I want to imagine a more just world. It's especially crushing because Glenn Cantav has made this his life's work. Beyond the streets, he fights for these issues through a nonprofit that raises awareness of oppression through technology. It seems violence conflated the issue. People looked at uh, looting, they looked at fires burning. You're often asked to condemn violence, but give us some context and perspective on that. As little kids, we're taught about the American Revolution and what that meant in terms of a violent means to an end. They get statues, they're considered heroes, but when it's people who are experiencing oppression when we're making noise and some of us outliers are pursuing other means, the whole movement gets condemned into one box. And it's not as simple as that. So let me pick up my that. Do you think the outliers, as you've defined them, hurt or help the greater cause of Black Lives Matter? I think that the outliers are victims of media portrayal in a sense that we need a critical mass of people to execute our demands. And because the outliers are being painted as thugs and thieves, it takes away from the movement. Appropriate context needs to be added to this conversation. And as if on cue, it was at this very moment that a founder of the Black Lives Matter movement in New York, Hawk Newsom, joined our conversation. What's good, baby? I think that there is a, um, miscategorization of the Black Lives Matter movement. The term Black Lives Matter can be used synonymously with the term civil rights struggle. When Martin Luther King was marching, there were cities burning throughout the 1960s. So you're, what people are saying is, oh, because it, it, there are riots, I can't be a part of it. So what they're saying is, I'm divesting from the new civil rights movement. We know during the debate, uh, 
the president was asked to denounce the Proud Boys and white supremacists, and his answer was controversial for many. I can see some watching now and says, why doesn't he ask Glenn and Hawk, did they denounce the looters and those who uh, raided stores and burned things and clashed during the protests? Is that a fair question? And what's your, what would your response be? I understand how people could denounce looters. I understand it. I don't do it. Yes, you have a lot, some people who are really frustrated who go out and destroy uh, property. But if we flip this around, right? If we flip this around and white people were suffering uh, what we suffer, do you think things would be as peaceful? When you look at uh, folks who didn't want to wear masks and, and wanted their barbershops open, they took assault rifles and went to the Capitol and they were encouraged. They were encouraged by the president. Like, we are peaceful people. We weren't running around lynching people, right? We weren't keeping people out of schools. We weren't forcing people to sit in the back of buses. We didn't chain people up and put them in slavery. But somehow we've become dangerous. And let me ask you, somewhere along the way, it became an us against them when it comes to police. Defund the police became a catch-all phrase. Uh, and people lined up saying, well, if I support Black Lives Matter, that must mean I am anti-cop. In your eyes, what does defund the police mean? Neighborhoods with the highest crime rates, highest murder rates, have the highest unemployment rates. Take the money from the police and put it into social programs. If we redistributed that wealth to the people, we wouldn't be looking at this housing crisis. We wouldn't have a healthcare crisis. We wouldn't have an education crisis. Like, the money's there. We just have to switch up how we're spending it. You're a young black man. Are you anti-cop? What's your interaction with police officers been like? Do you see any goodness in cops? Explain it to people who may be hearing you or open to this conversation for the first time. So if I'm looking at Trayvon Martin, if I'm looking at Mike Brown, Ahmaud Arbery, the laundry list of people that could have been me, every time I see a police officer, and I know that they're empowered by a system that can get them off scot-free, even if it's caught on tape, my murder is caught on tape, I'm terrified. You are. Legitimately terrified. I understand the need for security and keeping people safe, but I have problems with a system that empowers people to act without accountability. So what we're saying is some of these people might have good hearts, but they're taking, they're playing a part in a racist, oppressive system that needs to be abolished. We understand that there's a need for public safety and we're proposing different ways to police our communities. It seems like any solution is gonna require people to listen to each other, sides to listen to each other. Um, and that seems elusive these days. You see a world where critics of the police and supporters of the police can come together and really talk this through? There are white people who have good intentions, but when they're looking at cops, they feel safe. Black people want to feel safe too. We both want the same things, but we don't know how to have a dialogue in this country. People need to listen and understand where we're coming from when we say that we feel unsafe. Because once we, can, once we get past that, then we can establish systems that work for everybody. Let's welcome in Glenn Kuntav, the 26-year-old activist we just heard from there with David Ushery. Uh, Glenn, thanks so much for joining us on The Debrief. Really appreciate your time. And I think everyone's going to be excited to hear more from you because this is a complicated topic. And even 
in that piece, there's still so many unanswered questions. So I'm going to get right into it and ask you about the first thing you said. You're completely disheartened. I think a lot of people hear that and may be surprised. Can you expand on why after the Black Lives Matter movement during the summer went mainstream in a way that it hadn't before, why you still find yourself completely disheartened? Absolutely. First off, thank you so much for having me here, Adam. I just want to start off by saying that, yeah, I'm, I'm disheartened by the fact that Black Lives Matter became a mainstream movement, but it was a seasonal mainstream movement. So you had all these companies and all of these white allies or supposed white allies come together and they were performative activists. And you saw, you know, the black Instagram tiles appeared everywhere. People who never showed up to a protest were protesting for the first time. What people need to realize is that most of the work happens after the protests and you need to dedicate and commit to specific causes with actionable goals. Screaming Black Lives Matter or screaming justice for George Floyd isn't enough. And now this critical mass that we saw all over the world of people screaming Black Lives Matter, it's pretty much dissipated. And so I'm disheartened by the fact that we had real opportunity to pick up the mantle from the civil rights movement and really move towards more actionable goals. And we've lost a lot of momentum. You called some of the actions performative. Uh, certainly, I understand that. The Instagram tiles is a perfect example. Isn't there still value, though? To, I know you have big goals. Isn't there still value to simply the three words, Black Lives Matter, becoming mainstream enough that they're painted outside the White House, painted on Fifth Avenue here in Midtown? I see good and bad to Black Lives Matter becoming mainstream. Um, there's obviously good in the sense that there are now there's, there's opportunity to unpack what systemic racism means on a holistic level. But the bad that I see of it is that you have people who are co-opting the movement. You have people like Mayor de Blasio, for example, who refused to charge the cop, Daniel Pantaleo, that killed Eric Garner, refused to fire him, like refused to actually do anything that would actually mean what we're saying in the movement, Black Lives Matter. But of course, he wants to see the photo ops when it's now the thing to say or the thing to do. You know, it's not apples to apples, but I heard some of the same criticism of the gay rights movement at uh, the pride parade we covered a few years ago where there actually was uh, a movement that separated itself from the gay pride parade in New York city, New York city and said this mainstreaming, this commercialization of it is gone too far and they've lost sight of some of the actual goals and the, you know, the legal battles and the, and the equality that, that, that they thought that this was about. Um, do you see any similarities there? Any, any, any lessons to learn from the gay rights movement? Um, I don't know if I'm the best person to speak on the gay rights movement, but from what I've seen and heard from, from LGBTQ friends is the simple fact is that mainstream corporations want to jump on to pride because now like the people who really put their body on the lines, the trans folk of color, especially um, aren't being seen and aren't being centered. And even though gay marriage is legal now, you still have people, uh, you still have, you know, your trans women of color. I hear that this, the statistic is um, the average age is 35, right? The average age that you live to life expectancy is 35 because of systemic issues that are all wrapped around that. And so from that perspective, without a shadow of a doubt, it's a, it's a similar stage in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement because BLM 
is beyond just hashtags. It's beyond just marching. The fight for Black liberation goes deeper than that. When we're talking about Black liberation, I want to go deeper in terms of talking about what Black wealth means. By 2053, the median Black income is going to hit zero if we continue at this rate. What does Black health mean? We're talking Black health. It's African-Americans are 20% more likely to die from heart disease than non-Hispanic whites. Uh, black women are are 60% more likely to have high blood pressure. And this is literally a result of um, systemic issues such as food deserts, such as lack of education in our communities, such as marketing companies from these food companies that are targeting our communities. But we just want to talk about Black Lives Matter, wear a sign, and that's it, right? It's not that simple. And we need to build and have these deeper conversations. Well, how do you go beyond the idea, the the protest uh, certainly were about more than just police brutality, but that was the big takeaway, right? You, you talked about this police brutality was the, the takeaway from the, at least on the, uh, the mainstream level from the protest. So how do you go beyond that? What, what's the next step that you want to see the movement take so that it's not just people talking about defund the police or not to defund the police. So, the conversation is much deeper and mainstream media has painted it as a binary between cop versus anti-cop. But the spirit of defunding the police speaks to our relationship with violence versus empowering communities as a country. So with the defund the police movement, it's about moving away from a militarized police force and taking that money and putting it in education and putting it in community programs and putting it in anti-homelessness programs. It's about hitting at the core of these issues from a nonviolent perspective. That is really the nuance that we need to get into. And there are community organizations who have boots on the ground who are proposing legitimate solutions here, but everyone just wants to focus on defund the police versus not. The real untold gem I would say is that everyone wants the same thing in terms of public safety and there are different approaches to doing it. And so it's not just cop anti-cop. I mean, everything you're saying, I think most people hear that and say, well, yeah, that makes sense. Um, practically, it's challenging. You know that. Is there an example of a demilitarized police anywhere that 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 you can look to? Or how, just, I'm curious, how it would play out on a practical level? I'll, I'll illustrate it with two examples. First off, if you look at um, if you look at the budgets of social programs in suburbs throughout the United States, like that is what we're talking about. A demilitarized police force with adequate funding for social programs exists. And you just look at the suburbs. And that's why a lot of these systemic issues don't exist because their budgets or moral templates don't reflect it. And if you want to take it a step deeper, you look at Scandinavia, where cops are taught de-escalation tactics like how a social worker is taught. And it's not always necessary to pull out a gun to de-escalate a situation. And so when it comes to our relationship with violence, we need to reevaluate everything. I mean, I don't think it makes any sense that if someone's having a mental health breakdown, that a cop with six months training in the police academy and just his regular beat is the person to address this issue. You look at Deborah Danner. She was having a mental health, a mental health crisis and she was swinging uh, at the cop with her cane, the cop pulled out Sergeant Hugh Barry, shot her and killed her. If there was a medical professional with the appropriate training addressing this matter, Deborah Danner would be alive today. And it's not just Deborah Danner. This is, I guarantee you, you ask any cop off, uh, off 
the record, they're going to say that they're addressing issues that they're not properly trained to address. And frankly, they don't want to address. Yeah. Officers have, have voiced that for sure. You know, Glenn, that's, that's for sure. There are other officers have pushed back though, against the idea of this being a one size fits all approach when you mentioned a mental health issue, but there's also issues of armed assailants and it's a public safety concern in a community. How, How does it work in that case? Look, so the reality is that um, in New York, cops are responding. Five uh, percent of their responses are for violent crimes. But meanwhile, the NYPD has military grade equipment. And so what is the point of funding this military grade equipment for situations that are normally outside of the norm? It's easy to paint a blanket statement saying that we this is required for public safety to maintain law and order. When the reality comes, when you boil, when it boils down to it, the reality is that most of this is unnecessary in the first place. Now, of course, in terms of situations where um, where there are guns um, and when there's a shootout, uh, of course, that's a different conversation. But what the police like to do is send out these blanket statements, and it's the same thing that systemic racism has done for a long time. You know, painting black men as thugs and super predators and criminals across the board. And we're more than that. We need nuance to that conversation. Sometimes when I would cover the protests, I, I noticed, and, and I'm sure that you did too, you were at all the protests, you had such a big role as an activist in the city. There is a, a large percentage of patrol officers in the NYPD who are black or Hispanic. And I, I looked over and was wondering what they were thinking and some of the interviews we've done and other outlets have done with those officers have talked about feeling conflicted. What would you say to, to an officer who's been called, I've seen the New York times, a sellout or an uncle Tom and, and still says, you know, I support the movement, but it's really difficult when I'm hearing those sorts of things. What do you say to them? I really have a question for them. I'd like to know um, how they're able to sleep at night with the knowledge of the fact that they're working as agents of a system that is designed to keep people of color down. And the reason why I say this is you look at the blue wall of silence across the board, it's like a mafia. And I'm not exaggerating. You look at the clear evidence that Daniel Pantaleo used an illegal chokehold to kill Eric Garner. It happened on camera and not one NYPD officer spoke out and said anything. That's uh, black, brown, Asian, whatever, whatever you want to call them, no one said anything. And it's a function of this blue wall of silence, which is a mechanism of this system. So the question is really, how, how do you continue to do your job knowing that you're playing a role in the system? After the protests really took force in New York City this summer, they coincided with a spike in crime in the middle of the pandemic. And uh, I can remember an instance in the Bronx after a violent crime there, there was a shooting. We talked to people in this community. It was right outside of a NYCHA complex, public housing complex. And a few of the members of that community had voiced concerns to us that there was some sort of correlation between anti-police rhetoric or calls to defund the police and their feeling of being unsafe in a predominantly black or brown neighborhood. What would you say to those people who are concerned about the effects of the protests against police? I've heard a lot of similar concerns and tell you the truth, Adam, 
I think the issue lies with media portrayal. The reason why I say this is because you, the way that you framed this question is the way that a lot of uh, the uptick in crime is being framed through the local news outlets that millions of New Yorkers are seeing every day. And what's not being taken into account is the fact that we're about to face perhaps an unprecedented eviction crisis. What's not taken into account in correlation with the protests is the fact that, you know, we're in a recession that's rivaling the Great Depression. This uptick in, in crime a lot of the time, in my opinion, comes from the stress of not knowing how families are going to put food on the table and zooming out and looking holistically at these issues. There's so much stress. People are at their breaking point. When people are at their breaking point, things seem to hit the fan. Okay. Just to be clear, I didn't say there was a correlation. I'm saying that they coincided at the same time. And uh, certainly on our local news, we would never report any correlation without evidence or data. People have said that. Uh, and I'm just going to stand up for the media portrayal of that at our own affiliate here, NBC Four. The- I'm not, I'm not, I'm not firing shots at NBC Four. I'm just, I'm just speaking to the general trend that I've been seeing with news outlets that are um, making connections between the anti-cop protests that are going on and the uptick in violence, and in some ways suggesting that there is a connection. And so my criticism lays in the fact that, like, while while that narrative is being pushed out and pumped out to the people, what's not being talked about are the other underlying issues that often result in violence. This is actually a great stepping off point. Uh, something else in the interview with David Ushery that caught my attention was uh, Hawk mentioning the uh, looting and some of the people who used violence within the protest. You specifically called them outliers pursuing other means, uh, outliers that are, Victims of media portrayal. And I'm just curious about the media portrayal. I just want to know what you're talking about. And if you're saying that people in the public wouldn't look at looting as being negative if it weren't for the media's portrayal. Is that what you're saying? I'd say that the perception would be different. You look at Fox News throughout the history of the Black Lives Matter movement. And they call us thugs and criminals and they show a few people looting a couple of stores and they blanket the whole movement with that. But then on the flip side, when you have white protesters storming courthouses with assault rifles because they want a haircut, they're seen, they're portrayed by media outlets like Fox News as people who are pursuing specific civil liberties. So that's what I mean by victims of media portrayal. Right. So you're kind of, you're calling out that double standard there uh, with the goals that you've expressed about the Black Lives Matter movement and liberation. Does the rioting while limited or looting extremely limited, certainly here in New York City, but, d- but does that stand in the way of the progress at all? I think that at the end of the day, it all depends where all of this goes, you know, You want to talk about whether it's in the gay rights movement, Stonewall was a riot. You want to talk about how the United States achieved independence. Like it was that revolution uh, started off as uh, little bits of disobedience and snowballed into a full-fed revolution and a new constitution, right? So there really are two paths. There's the incremental path where we get laws passed and work with the system, but that hasn't been working so far. And that's why people are pursuing other means. 
So that more extremist path to some could lead to something completely new and different. And I don't know if I'm, I'm the person to determine. I'm just a man. I don't know if anyone will. Time will tell, really. Right. Glenn, you are also the founder of Movers and Shakers NYC. It's a, an action advocacy campaign for marginalized communities. For someone listening right now who either wants to get involved or who might think, well, maybe Glenn can help me. Um, what can you tell them about Movers and Shakers? Yeah, for sure. So Movers and Shakers, we're a nonprofit that uses augmented reality to write black and brown history into American curricula. The bottom line is we just never saw ourselves as black kids in our textbooks. You learn about Christopher Columbus, but you don't, and his boats, but they don't talk about the Tino slaves at the bottom of those boats, right? And so if you're a parent that's looking for things to do for their kids while they're doing remote learning, we're building out an app that's telling the stories of women, people of color, the LGBTQIA plus community. And if you want to learn more, you can go to moversandshakersnyc.com and try out our app. And if you want to just learn more about us, go to the website. We're at Movers and Shakers NYC on Instagram as well. Awesome. Okay, Glenn, thank you so much for the time. Really enjoy the dialogue. Hope everybody else did as well. And good luck to you, man. We'll talk soon. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. And a big thanks to our production team as well. Melissa Mack, Darren Price, and Ben Berkowitz. I'm your host, Adam Cooperstein, in for David Ushery. We'll check with you next time on The Debrief. Ah.